After months and months of uncertainty, the Bi-State Development Corporation appeared to have a plan to revive the troubled loop trolley. But that plan ran into a fatal roadblock on Friday from commissioners that oversee the transit agency. So on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, we welcome back St. Louis Public Radio's Kay Petrin to break down what went wrong with this trolley plan. We also talk with the Kansas City Star's Brian Lowry on how Missouri's Republican senators are navigating the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to the Politically Speaking Weekly News Roundup. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and I'm here with my co-host... Jason Rosenbaum. And we are here with our co-worker... I'm Kay Petron. Today we're going to be talking about the final death, maybe, of the loop trolley (laughs) with Kay. And later on in our program, we're going to be talking about St. Louis County and how they're handling panhandling, as well as checking in with Kansas City Star reporter Brian Lowery about what's going on in Washington, D.C. But first, the loop trolley. Okay, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. What happened today? There was a meeting this morning which was sort of described to me as a check-in, where Talby Roach, the CEO of Bi-State, came up with his plan. He's going to present the plan to the committees, um, and they're going to say, okay, yeah, t- you know, take this on to the board of full board of commissioners. We're going to vote on whether or not we'll take over the loop trolley. And from my understanding, it's a plan where Bi-State was going to use unused federal funds to basically revive the trolley for over a four-year period. Yeah, basically, because the trolley already has about 800 k a year that's expected to grow from this tax district. So the idea is, okay, we're maybe about 250000 a year short. We can use leftover money that you know wasn't enough money to buy a bus in this other federal grant, and we can pile it together from different grants and keep the trolley afloat until the tax growth has been enough that it's self-sustaining. So we should probably get to the part where it died. So yeah. what happened, Kay? So the commissioners uh, heard the plan that Talby Roach brought to them. It's a bunch of pe- of commissioners who are also committee members. I think about nine out of the ten people there uh, were also commissioners as well as on committees. And so they heard the plan and they said, nope, we are not sending this on to a full board of commissioners vote. So you actually talked with Talby Roach after that happened. And we're going to play a clip now from that exchange, because I think this is pretty telling about the future of this very troubled project. Are you going to be um, coming up with revised versions of this proposal or trying to answer some of the concerns that they had? Or is this sort of it for um, Bi-State taking over the trolley? 
At this point, that's it. What we I was tasked with putting a detailed plan together, um, and so I did do that. Um, and I, I think there was a lot of aspects that were good and thorough, but of course there were some concerns, as there are with any complicated project. And this is how we look at projects as a community. We try to look at them uh, honestly and straightforwardly, and we try to see how they fit within the fabric. And, you know, we didn't answer all those questions uh, adequately to get a yes, and so now we're going to move on. And as far as Bi-State is concerned, uh, I won't be moving any more forward. I have so many questions about this (laughs) because on Tuesday when – uh, Mr. Roach presented to the St. Louis County Council, I think he made it sound like this was going to get approved. And I think the assumption of everyone on that council, including some people who were rather irritated that the trolley would live to see another day, thought it was going to get approved too. I honestly also had the sense that uh, that he thought it was going to get approved. He never, you know, He never explicitly said as much, but there was a lot of sort of this is a, you know, this is a functional plan. It's not a perfect situation, but this is the best path forward is sort of how he kept presenting it. Um, the commissioners just really weren't convinced. Uh, there there were a couple things that came up. People were like, well, why aren't we finding, you know, a private sponsor to run it? What happened to, uh, there was a letter that uh, Justin Zimmerman brought in that was a private CEO, he said, who had pledged up to $8 million in support to the trolley that they hadn't come through on. He's like, who's hunting down these people and asking them for money? You know, why is this coming to buy state right now? Um, and so there there were a lot of questions sort of to that effect. And the, the commissioners who were on those committees just were not convinced. What is the federal government going to do, given that it funded a lot of this, and it's not operating. I would imagine the feds are not super pleased with the situation. So the regional administrator for our area um, was at the event and he basically said, look, uh, the grant for this trolley, uh, 25 of the 36 million comes with a you have to finish this project and run it sort of assumption built into the funding. And he said, if you do not fulfill that obligation, we have the right to sue. I think the other thing that's come up and the reason that Talby Roach told St. Louis County Council on Tuesday that they needed to move forward with this was he has said several times that he thinks if the trolley fails or failed, that it would be harder for St. Louis and the entire region to get money for transit in the future, that the FTA would look at this and say, well, we're not going to give you money when we can give it to Cleveland or somewhere else that was bidding for competitive funds. In fairness, the St. Louis County Council, the Republicans kind of questioned that. They sort of said, well, have you heard that? Have you seen that in writing? Uh, I think they were suspicious that some of the local FTA regional folks are trying to save this project because they were involved in it Mm. getting off the ground in the first place and it's egg on their face uh, amongst the people in the FTA. But Has he addressed that at all? Because I felt like his pitch was like, we have to do this because if we don't, we put all our transit funding in the future in jeopardy. Not for Bi-State as it runs now, but any funds that come available in the future. I asked the FTA about that 
and they sort of gave me a boilerplate answer. We consider all sorts of different factors. Um, one of the factors is, does the region have evidence that it can deliver? So there is sort of a logical conclusion that, well, if we have a project that we didn't deliver on, then that could affect our sort of deliverability score. Um, the other sort of source of this is there's Talby Roach provided an email from a DC lobbyist uh, that sort of said, well, I was, you know, I also work with Fort Worth and they were in a situation where they returned a grant and then I had all sorts of issues getting them, you know, these federal grants in the future. It seems like there's a lot of complicating factors there. It's not a one-to-one -one situation with St. Louis, so it's hard to say. So the local administrator from the FDA did sort of say in the meeting, look, if we're going through this litigation to try to get $25 million back and we get an application from St. Louis, I mean, does that sound like a good idea? He, you know, he didn't, he didn't outright answer the question or sort of say, we're definitely denying you or anything like that, but he sort of phrased it rhetorically. Interesting. Well, even though the loop trolley is dead, I am confident we will be talking about it again and we will have Kay back on the podcast to talk about it again. But I want to thank you for coming in and explaining some things to us. Thanks for having me. And for our second segment, we're talking about panhandling regulations and vagrancy laws in St. Louis County. Jason's going to take over hosting duties because I covered this issue this week. So Julie, what exactly is going on about vagrancy and panhandling in St. Louis County? So it appears that the staff attorneys at the county have told the St. Louis County Council that they need to change their vagrancy laws because the vagrancy laws are potentially unconstitutional. And I would say if you look at the vagrancy laws, you can kind of understand why they might be problematic. So I'm going to read a bit of the vagrancy law so people really understand what it says. So the county's current ordinance declares that a person can't be a vagrant. And then it defines what a vagrant is or who a vagrant is. And these are the ways it defines that. It's a person without any visible means of support who may be loitering around houses of ill fame, gambling houses, or places where liquor is sold or drunk. There's, there's another definition where it says a vagrant person is a person tramping or wandering around from place to place without any visible means of support. That was my favorite definition. If you take that literally, when I go for a run in Richmond Heights <laughs> and I'm just wandering back, you could make an argument that I am a vagrant. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but the way this reads to me is they're trying to criminalize um, people who are homeless. And that is something that is unconstitutional. You can't discriminate against a person just because they don't have a place to live or they don't have a job. You can't start taking their rights away. So anyways, the county council has been told they need to change these laws. We think the impetus for this, although that's not been confirmed by the county, but nevertheless, it seems it seems to be the impetus, is that a man has sued, a man who is uh, asking for money at Interstate 55 in Lindbergh, who doesn't have a home, has sued the county because he keeps getting ticketed for asking for money. I think he's approaching cars and asking for money. And that lawsuit, I mean, it's scheduled right now to go to trial in April. I wouldn't be surprised if they settled. But but sometimes when he's been ticketed, he's been ticketed using this vagrancy ordinance. And I guess a judge in that case, if you believe his lawyer, a judge told the county that they can't 
enforce this, that it's not legal. And that, that person's name is Robert Fernandez. And I think when you looked him up on CaseNet, he had been ticketed a lot. Many times. Like when he filed the lawsuit in June, it was 39 times, but they just filed some stuff yesterday, his lawyer, and he had been ticketed like three times last week. This is an issue that I think pops up in a lot of densely populated areas. On the one hand, you usually have a pretty strong network of people that want to care for the homeless, that feel like vagrancy laws is what you just said, criminalizing people that don't have homes. But there could be like another perspective of people that get asked for money like at a stoplight or get asked for money kind of aggressively that just don't like that practice. And from reading your article, it seems like there is some division on the council of those two perspectives. Right. So before we get to that, um, Mr. Fernandez has been charged with this vagrancy ordinance or violating it, but he also has been charged with violating other ordinances that they're not looking at repealing that have to do with solicitation, so asking people for money. So I'm not going to get into that because that's not the issue, but it's not just that he's been charged dozens of times or ticketed for violating the vagrancy ordinance. There's a panoply of things he's he's apparently um, received tickets for. But yeah, there is a split on the council. So on Tuesday, uh, Councilman Ernie Trakis, a Republican from South County, tried to introduce a substitute bill uh, that would have basically changed the language, taken out this vagrancy language that I just referenced and changed it. And his language was more about um, being able to ticket people for certain types of behavior. So um, asking someone, soliciting someone, and then when they say no, continuing to solicit them. He also wanted to be able to ticket people for blocking a roadway or soliciting someone in a vehicle. Uh, it seemed to be, again, about this case, although it's probably more broad than that. And I wouldn't say that we know that the Democrats are opposed to some of that. It was more that they were not happy that he was trying to introduce this at the meeting and have that discussion at the meeting because they want to talk about it this Tuesday. Yeah. And I think especially when you talk about people soliciting in the middle of a roadway at a stoplight, that gets into some really tricky legal terrain. Because if this person was on a sidewalk, I think it would be pretty clear that they have the right to ask somebody for money. But when you're standing in the middle of the road and when you are potentially posing like a danger to not only yourself but to other people, that's where I think this this really does become kind of a difficult policymaking endeavor. Yeah, I think Lisa Clancy said it's a delicate balance. You know, you have to balance people's civil rights. They do have people do have the right to express themselves. And sometimes that applies to um situations where people are panhandling. Uh, but also, you know, there are aggressive situations that, that many people in the community don't want to tolerate. They think it's a quality of life issue. Um, sometimes people are scared if someone's like following them down the street. I mean, not even if they're in a car, just following them down the street and asking for money. So I, I do think that this is like a an issue that comes up in local government a lot. And I also think there's a split even among like homeless activists about what to do when you encounter somebody who's asking for money. Some would say, you know, give him a dollar, him or her a dollar or two. Others are say, don't do that. Give money to like a homeless shelter or some agency that could come in and help them. But I know that's kind of separate and apart from the issue that's being dealt with in the county council right now. 
Yeah, well, I guess we'll see what happens on Tuesday. So now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. When we come back, we'll be talking to Brian Lowry, the Kansas City Star's Washington, D.C. reporter, about Missouri Senators Josh Hawley and Roy Blunt and President Trump's impeachment trial. And we're back from break. Jason and I are talking remotely to the Kansas City Star's D.C. correspondent, Brian Lowry, who is in a phone booth again, Brian? Yeah, I'm in a phone booth in the Senate press gallery. I didn't know those still existed. Well, you know, it's it's the Senate loves its rules and traditions, including phone booths. <laughs> we are having Brian on the podcast so he can update us on what's going on with our Missouri senators during the impeachment trial. Brian, can you give us an update? I want to start with Senator Josh Hawley about where exactly he stands on impeachment and what he's been doing as these proceedings have been going on? Well, Hawley has been uh, pretty pretty outspoken in his criticism of the the House managers, the, the, the House lawmakers who are serving as the prosecutors. Uh, the other day, he, you know, he, he stepped to a crowd of reporters just to outline his criticisms of them and, you know, noted that he was a, a former clerk of Chief Justice John Roberts, who is presiding. And before we actually got into the actual trial, as some people recall, Hawley had put forward this legislation that would have enabled um, the Senate to dismiss impeachment if the House didn't uh, send over the articles uh, within 25 days. He did get a number of co-sponsors to that, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, um, Hawley, by his own admission, has really kind of talked about how that was meant to put pressure on uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. She did end up uh, um, sending over the articles, uh, so you can judge for yourself whether or not you think Hawley's, uh, Hawley's legislation had a role in it. But it never, it never got a vote because it was more of a, a thing that, uh, that was like kind of played into the messaging about the House, the Senate Republican messaging about the delay. So here is actually Senator Hawley talking to reporters. This is a clip that was sent to Missouri reporters by Josh Hawley's office. I thought yesterday was really an extraordinary performance by the House managers. Uh, they managed to alienate senators, uh, attack their own jury. You know, I mean, when you had Representative Nodler up there saying that it would be treacherous for senators to vote against their amendments. This was like at 1230 at night, that it would be a vote against the United States. That, of course, brought an admonishment from the Chief Justice of the United States, and rightly so. So if the point was to go on for 13 hours to no apparent purpose, frequently using rebuttal time just to delay further and to alienate the very senators that they're trying to convince, and I'd say it was a, a raging success on their part. But if the point was to try to convince people, I, I think they're off to a terrible start. So from listening to that clip from Senator Hawley, I think there's an obvious question that comes from it. Was there ever a chance that had the House managers done something differently, that roughly 20 Republicans were going to vote to throw a president of their own party out of office? I think that was always pretty unlikely. And, and the, that clip that Hawley's speaking about the rules debate that they had had during the first the first night. And if you go back, there were a lot of 53 to 47 party line votes where all 53 Republicans uh, repeatedly voted down uh, Democratic proposals to either subpoena documents from the White House or call witnesses. 
Uh, now, Republicans say they, they can come back to those issues later on, but one thing that's pretty clear from that is that going into this process, both parties are pretty fairly in their own own camps. Um, so the House manager's arguments aren't really having an effect in, in swaying them at this point. Is Josh Hawley the only person in the Senate who has this former professional relationship with Chief Justice John Roberts? I actually find that kind of interesting. Um, I can't. I can't say definitively that he's the um, the, the only one who knows Roberts outside of the, outside of this role. But I believe he's probably the only one who clerked for him. Um, just given the given the age of of the senators, I mean, a lot of these senators confirmed uh, uh, Roberts a few years <laughs> right, ago, right. <laughs> and it is an interesting dynamic where he is someone who uh, you know was an employee of of the man presiding over the case. Yeah, there's no other almost millennials in the Senate besides Josh Hawley. (laughs) So let's move on and talk about Senator Roy Blunt, who I think in an article this weekend, you described yourself as mild mannered in in compared to Josh Hawley. Right. And I I think you can even look at their their public comments about this process, this trial process in particular, where where Hawley has been very outspoken in his criticism uh, to reporters in the building, to cable news. And Roy Blunt has been mild in his criticism, where, but he has made a few comments here or there where he's complained, oh, they're just making the same arguments again and again. Um, Blunt is always very cautious in, in what he says. Uh, I think that's one thing that certainly defines his, his uh, public persona. Um, so you're not, you're not hearing a, a, a lot of comments um, from Roy Blunt about you know, what he thinks the flaw is, although he, I think he is, you know, a lot of reporters would say he's fair that they are repeating their talking points quite a bit. Partially that's because, you know, one thing the House uh, managers may be doing is trying to persuade people watching at home, not just the senators in the room. And for people watching at home, not watching, you know, the entirety of these proceedings, you know, it is useful for them to hear one message over and over again for those maybe half-hour bits where they watch. For the senators in the room, that can be a little bit dull. Um, where Blunt's role is most central in this is his, uh, you know, uh, is his role as the Senate Rules Chairman. Yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? I know on the way into this trial, uh, there was a lot of questions about what rules would be used and how it would kind of be administered. Is he involved in those decisions? So Blunt is was definitely involved in the creation of the rules package that uh, Republicans put forward and then was ultimately voted on. Uh, as Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was 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 really the the, the top leader on that. But one thing Blunt uh, has had to do is Blunt is in tar- charge of the kind of general rules that affect not just the the Senate trial itself. But what's happening around the Senate trial with the the press coverage? Now he's not been alone in he's not been alone in this, but he's had to carry it out as rules chairman. One thing that got a lot of attention going into this uh, trial, and I was one of the people who wrote about it early on, was the greater restrictions they're putting on press access uh, during the Senate trial. There's been a lot written about how senators have to drink water and milk, and they're probably <laughs> dieting on on candy right now. But the thing that I'm kind of interested in, I've read about this in the Huffington Post, is the senators cannot have their phones with them. And I know that I've talked with Senator Hawley about kind of the dangers of 
overconsumption of, of phones and tablets. Uh, that also explains why they're complaining so much about the repetition of information. Yeah. So have you <laughs> seen? Have you gotten a sense of whether senators are going through some visible digital withdrawal? <laughs> and is this kind of like showcasing that Josh Hawley may have a point that maybe we're using our phones and tablets a little bit too much? You know, there, I think there was a story, I think it was by BuzzFeed, that had some quotes from uh, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, who was talking about how <laughs> overjoyed he's been, actually, like, to be without his phone, how it's allowed him to focus um, a bit more. Um, you, you know, one thing I will say, there are a few senators who are finding there is a loophole in that rule, which is the senators that have Apple Watches. Are allowed to use their uh, Apple. Are allowed to go onto the Senate floor. It doesn't have the same prohibition as a phone. So I think there are there's a handful of senators who have figured out a way to get past that and still have um, their access to the outside world. Oh my gosh! Um, I also saw a sketch that like Marco Rubio was writing with a like a quill or something yeah, like that. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean as far as the, this rule of uh, this milk uh, rule, this is apparent. This is apparently a a rule that it's it's not just for the say the impeachment trial it's a, a senate floor rule but a lot of people didn't realize this was a rule until you get into a situation where you're going to have to be stuck on the floor for hours <laughs> on end and it goes back to um you know it goes back to uh, senator dirksen in the 1960s apparently in the middle of the debate asked if there was a uh, if he could ask a senate page to go out and get him a a, a glass of milk and the, the, it was concluded there was no rule um, against getting a glass of milk and bringing it to the uh, Senate floor, and that kind of set the precedent that milk was okay. Uh, why milk is okay and, say, fruit juice or Gatorade uh, isn't, I don't know, but, you know, obviously there's there's a lot of jokes about the influence of the dairy lobby that milk is one of the, the only liquids they're allowed to have. Well, I'll just say before we let you go that I am basically lactose intolerant because I haven't drinking milk in five or six years. So if I was a U.S. senator right now trying this impeachment trial, I probably would have passed out due to a lack of sustenance. So Thank you so much, Brian, for coming on to talk to us. We'll probably check back into you, I suspect, when this looks like it's wrapping up. All right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So now we've come to the last segment of our show, which we call Show Me Something, where we talk about what in Missouri politics is catching our eye this week. I think what's catching my eye, and apparently the eye of at least one Missouri legislator, (laughs) is Drag Queen Story Hour. Drag Queen Story Hour, for people who don't know, is this phenomenon that's happening across the country. It is a event where drag queens come to your local public library and read a book and do sort of an event for for kids. And it has upset a lot of uh, more conservative people across the country. A lot of local governments, I mean, I guess maybe state governments too, but a lot of local governments in particular have kind of tried to do things to make sure that Drag Queen Story Hour can't happen in their local community. In other places, including St. Louis, it's really embraced. I mean, the St. Louis Public Library has had Drag Queen Story Hour, from what I can tell, since 2017, and it's a huge and popular event. But this legislative session, there is a state rep from Southwest Missouri, Ben Baker, who filed a bill to pull state funding from libraries and potentially fine or jail librarians 
who display inappropriate content in libraries. And apparently what he's trying to get at is, in fact, Drag Queen Story Hour. So, Jason, I think it always surprises people that the state legislature handles things like this. Why do you think this has come up? I think this has come up because Drag Queen Story Hour is controversial. Missouri is a socially conservative state. Even though there's been advancement in LGBTQ rights over the last 10 or 15 years, there are there's still a large population of not only Missouri legislators, but also Missourians who see being gay or lesbian as a sin. Um, and from reading Representative Baker's comments to the Kansas City Star, apparently he finds this objectionable. And I think I don't think he's the only person that finds this event objectionable. Probably not. Um, I will just say my wife is a librarian at Washington University, and this is the talk of the library world. I confirmed that (laughs) with her last night. I think it comes down to a couple of things, though. One of the things I was thinking about a little bit more deeply with this bill is libraries are public buildings, and oftentimes, especially when there are free speech cases, they often revolve around whether some restriction is content neutral or not. So I would wonder if this actually was passed, whether it would run into constitutional problems because, you know, if, if, if a parent objected to Drag Queen Story Hour or any other thing, they may say, well, we have the right to be here because we're using public spaces just as any other group is as well. Yeah, I think um, it's worth noting that according to the Kansas City Star article, there's not a whole lot of chance that this bill is even going to have a hearing in committee. I think it's pretty dead on arrival if we are to believe our uh, colleague, Crystal Thomas, who did the reporting on this for the Kansas City Star. And um, I think for some people that might be surprising because, as you said, Missouri is a conservative state. But I also think there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle that don't like to mess with with what goes on in libraries for the reasons you stated. Like it, it, it's not it's frowned upon to censor content in libraries. And I also think the way the bill is written, uh, it would punish librarians and people generally, I think, have positive views of librarians. I, I, cer- I certainly do. I would not <laughs> want my wife thrown in jail or fined because I would have to raise my kids by myself and I would miss my wife. So. so I wouldn't say this bill is getting scuttled because I believe the Missouri General Assembly is completely comfortable with drag queen story hour. I suspect that there are many, many people in the General Assembly who would prefer that not to come to the library near them. Um, St. Louis is is not necessarily in that category, although who knows. Um, but I think that when you start uh, looking at what you're doing with librarians, people start to get very nervous. We'll have to see what happens. But I, I would tend to agree with you that this bill is probably more of a statement and the bill being filed and getting publicity probably is the farthest it's going to go for now. All right. Well, that's our show for this week. We'd like to thank our executive editor, Shula Newman, our politics editor, Fred Ehrlich, and our sound engineer, John Larson. Jason, between shows, where can people find you on the interwebs? Probably watching YouTube videos about wrestling or basketball, <laughs> but you can also find me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And you can find me at J.S. O'Donohue. Thank you. We hope to have you back next week.